Hi, everyone. This is Liam Sanyo from Inside Scientific, your favorite online source for life science webinars, virtual events, interviews, and educational content helping you do your best work. This episode of Expert Answers features Dr. Clive May and Dr. Yugish Lankadeva from the Flory Institute of Neuroscience and Mental Health, who joined us for a webinar to present groundbreaking research in models of acute kidney injury and the methods used to gather these insights using the latest in fiber optic sensing technology to obtain dissolved oxygen and microvascular blood perfusion at the tissue level. Let's get right into it. first question today will be directed to Clive and Yukish. So why do the perfusion measurements not always correlate with the total renal blood flow measurements? Yeah, that's an interesting point. This is because we're using two totally different methods. The transit time is measuring total blood flow across the whole blood vessel, the whole renal artery going into the kidney, whereas the laser Doppler is just measuring microvascular blood cell perfusion in a small area of the tissue in different zones of the kidney in the medulla and cortex. We wouldn't therefore expect these to be identical and I think that the data we've got indicates certainly that the perfusion measurements are giving us a good index of what is actually happening in these different zones of the kidney. And I'd like to add on to Clive's answer and say it's also important to note that the measurements we get with laser Doppler is a measure of flux and it doesn't take into account the number of perfused capillaries. Okay. Our next question, coming back to you guys, what is the mechanism causing decreased perfusion and hypoxia selectively in the renal medulla during sepsis? This is a really important question, and this needs to be investigated further in our future studies. But we do hypothesize that a number of mechanisms might be involved in this redistribution of intrarenal blood flow. And some of the primary mechanisms we think might contribute to this is the expression of inflammatory cytokines in uh, localized areas in, within the kidney, and also deficits in nitric oxide-mediated vasodilatation within the renal cortex and the renal medulla. Certainly, in our previous studies, we have used this model to do gene expression for various isoforms of nitric oxide synthesis, such as endothelial-derived nitric oxide synthase, which is a primary contributor to the nitric oxide-mediated vasodilatation in the medulla. And we have reported that gene expression for endothelial nitric oxide synthase is actually down-regulated within the renal medulla, whereas endothelial nitric oxide is upregulated within the renal cortex. This might be a mechanism, but as I said before, this needs to be investigated further. Okay, thank you. Michael, this next question is directed to you. Is it possible to use this method or can it be altered to measure cerebral perfusion during resuscitation? Uh, the short answer to that is absolutely yes. Um, our, our monitors and sensors have been used quite extensively in a variety of anim animal models to make cerebral measurements in, in a variety of uh, situations. Um, obviously, there's the question of access and sensors need to be placed by a craniotomy. But absolutely yes, I believe that Professor May and Dr. Lang Lankadeva, both you presented, some, some of your slides were describing, were they not, the use of our sensors in in the brain, is that right? Yeah, we've been using it in a, a sheet model of myocardial infarction in which we've been monitoring 
cerebral perfusion and oxygenation. I think, as we mentioned in the webinar, that uh, we find if we put the probes in very acutely, they don't give what we think are correct results. But certainly once we've had them implanted for a day or two, give excellent readings, which seem to correspond very much with uh, other measures we have. Right, that's very interesting because we've also in other situations observed, in other large animal uh, situations observed, a a requirement for sensors to be in place for a period of time of, you know, one or two days, very much in line with what you observed. And and thereafter, uh, things seem to work very well and seem to generate, you know, believable and, and responsive data. In small animal models, and I guess I'm primarily talking about rodents, it seems to be a very straightforward application and and. It doesn't we don't typically see a requirement for a, a lengthy equilibration time at all? And generally speaking, in rodents, often using stereotactic apparatus to maintain the sensor. You know, it, it is one of the most reliable applications we see for our for our monitors and sensors. Great. So actually, I might just jump ahead a little bit here, and then ask this question to you, Michael, as well. Can this be used for measuring perfusion in other organs, such as the liver or heart? And then I know we were talking just a bit about, you had mentioned a couple different animal models. Is there any animal model where this procedure wouldn't apply? I can't really say. I don't believe there's really any animal model that we exclude uh, for any particular reason. In in terms of other organs and tissues, yep, absolutely. I mean, each, each type of organ or each tissue type comes with its own kind of set of challenges or, you know, advantages and difficulties. You know, for instance, liver liver can be challenging for whatever reason, partly to do with its kind of physical nature, its physical properties. So PO2 readings, invasive oxygen readings can be a bit challenging. Perfusion readings can be made non-invasively via the surface of the liver quite reliably. Things like moving tissues, the heart is, is challenging, obviously by virtue of the fact that it's a moving tissue. But we've been successful in obtaining reliable oxygen, oxygen readings from that tissue. In that case, however, perfusion readings using our laser Doppler monitors is challenging simply by virtue of the fact that the tissue is moving and, and therefore it's very difficult to observe a baseline away from move, movement artifact. But yeah, bottom line, the, the monitors and these sensors can be used in a, in a whole scope, whole variety of, of tissue types. Perfect. Clive and Yugish, how good of a measure of medullary PO2 is, is urinary PO2 and what factors influence this relationship? I think it's important to understand that the value of u- bladder urinary PO2 we get is not an absolute value of medullary tissue PO2. But what we are rather suggesting is that the pattern of change between these two variables are quite similar not only in the healthy state, but also during development of acute kidney injury and also following resuscitation with commonly used clinical vasopressors. And what we have found in our experiments is that the signal of medullary PO, sorry, signal of bladder urinary PO2 to detect medullary PO2 is greatly enhanced under diuretic conditions where there is a high urine flow from the renal pelvis to the bladder. So certainly under conditions such as volume resuscitation or in the cases where they're given diuretics such as furosemide, we see the signal to be quite enhanced between these two measures. Yeah, so I think, I think it's important to emphasize that you have to have a good urine flow for this, to, to, this correlation to be close. And if urine flow drops below what, between lower than one mil a minute, then you, the correlation is less close. Okay, great. Michael, how 
are the long-term sensors calibrated to ensure continued accurate measurements of tissue oxygenation? Right, that's a good question. We calibrate each sensor individually against a a range of uh, six nitrogen-oxygen mixtures between zero and, if I remember right, uh, 21% oxygen. And that data is converted into a calibration curve for each for that individual sensor and is stored inside a little microchip in the connector uh, for that sensor, which is read by the monitor once, uh, once the, the sensor is connected. The beauty of, so in other words, the bottom line being that sensors are supplied pre-calibrated and there's no calibration procedures required. Uh, or uh, that the the end user needs to do by virtue of the fact that we use a method of measuring fluorescence lifetime rather than fluorescence intensity we are able to provide that pre-calibration on the basis that it won't change or uh, evolve or decay uh, during use so we see very little drift over the course of the specified lifetime of sensors okay and then Clive and Yugish, maybe Michael, you might be able to join on this question as well. I know Clive and Yugish, you mentioned that you've reused the probes in the past, but is there an anticipated life lifespan on them, or how long can you reuse them? Is it a one-time thing, or is it um, can you reuse them many times? First, I'll just say that we've had a pro probes implanted for three weeks, I think, is the maximum, and uh, we've been able to continuously obtain measurements over that period of time. I think the other thing to say is that over that period of time, the measurement's stable, again, suggesting that the calibration is stable and that we're getting, you know, believable and useful measurements. We take our probes out, usually after a week is the length of our normal experiment, and generally we can reuse them again. Occasionally we can reuse them a third time, but probably in general I'd say we use them twice. So we use them for two one week periods. That's interesting. I guess I, Mike, I was going to ask uh, what sort of, I, I guess you're not reading continuously during, during those two, uh, one, two, or up to three weeks. Presumably you, you kind of connect the sensor from time to time to make sort of time point measurements. Uh, is that reading? Is that right? We do continuous measurements for about 56 hours in the right. conscious animal. But the important thing here to understand is that the monitors do allow you to change the acquisition time. Yeah. So if you were acquiring one every second, then of course the probes won't last as long. But if you were to acquire data one in every every minute or one in every five minutes, it does allow you to do these long-term measurements, which is right. quite useful right. with these long-term studies. Right. That's interesting. Yeah, I guess that's, I was kind of getting at whether you were re reducing the sampling rate. And that is a key feature on the on our oxygen monitors is that uh, the, the user can dial in the kind of sampling rate to suit the experiment given that there is a sort of an accumulated lifetime limitation on the, the oxygen sensing part of our, of our monitors. Excellent. Yeah, and also after we, I'll just add on towards the end that once we do take these probes out, it is possible to do a quick check if the calibrations are still in. What we commonly do is we test it in room air and then we bubble it with carbon uh, in a solution with carbon dioxide to see the upper and the lower limits. And then that kind of gives us confidence that these probes are still detecting levels of changing oxygen levels so we can reuse them if we had to. 
Perfect. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, we we see basically a pretty much a black and white situation with sensors. They either work and you know, doing that test in, in air and the zero oxygen is, is the perfect way of checking whether they do or they don't. It's it's pretty much black and white. We we always find. Yeah. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Expert Answers and that you'll tune into future episodes where researchers just like you answer questions about their work and share science. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next time.